Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I'm joined, as always, by the man who has just spent this morning trying to fix his knot board. <laughs> it's Greg. How are you today, Greg? Yeah, I'm doing well. Doing well. Um, How, how's your knot, knot board? board. <laughs> Yeah, looking good. Like a nice bit of attention to detail there. Um, yeah, no, it was good. Uh, yeah, things are okay. Um, I think I told you earlier last week that my oldest daughter was was going out on a date on Friday. And I remember, I think I put it in the group. You, you told me by text. Yeah. yeah, you didn't mention it on the podcast, but yeah, you did. Yeah, tell yeah, me sorry, by text. Man. Okay, okay, we're we're going there, are we? <laughs> well, I am. Um, I've kind of been through. The, I kind of went through the gambit of emotions. I came home from work, and my wife was like, "I need to, I need to speak to you about something." So, like, I'm thinking, like, it's bad news. Do you know what I mean? Like, someone, like, a, a, like, a loved one has expired or something like that. And I'm like, "What? What? What is it? What's the matter?" She said, "Oh, um, a boy has asked Macy out on a date." And I was like, oh, all right, well, you know, it's, it's going to happen eventually. Do you know what I mean? She's 15. Um, and, she, and my wife was like, are you all right about it? And I was like, well, yeah, sure, I suppose so. You know what I mean? She goes out in groups with boys. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to be that different, I'm thinking. But as the as the evening wore on, <laughs> I started to become a bit uneasy about it. So she was, it was supposed to be pick, picking her up in a taxi on Friday night and taking her down to GBR in Dubai, Jimmy Beach Road, to the, a mini golf place at 7 o'clock. So I said, that you're not going down to GBR at 7 o'clock on a Friday night. Like, for, if, absolutely not. You know what I mean? Forget it. I said, you can go earlier. You can go at five if you want. So she was like, oh, right, okay. So she spoke to the boy and he booked it again for five. And then the next day, <laughs> I said to her, look, I don't look, I don't think I want him picking you up. Why don't you get him to come here and I'll take you both over there? She's like, oh, no, come on, Dad. <laughs> and I was like, no, I said, I'll, I said, I'll drop you off. I won't um, speak to him. Yeah, I would say I'll speak to him, obviously, but I won't like, embarrass you or anything, but, you know. <laughs> I said, but I, I feel like I need to sort of eyeball him because he doesn't go to our school. She met him like down at the little local mall um, and she was hanging out down there. I said, so I need to get a look at him. Do you know what I mean? So she was like, all oh, right. So then on the Friday morning, uh, my wife said, look, why don't you just let her, let the boy pick her up? And I was like, no, absolutely not. No, no. She was like, all right, whatever. And then I was taking Macy to school and I was like, all right, look, you know, just tell him he can, he can come and pick you up if, you know, if you still want to do that, it's fine. Aww. So then... I got in on Friday. I got in a little bit early because I wanted to still have a look at this kid when he came to pick her up. And she's still in her school uniform. And I was like, wait, why not, why not change from school? And she was like, oh, I can't be bothered. I said, you're not going to get ready for your for your date? And she was like, I don't want to go. And I was like, like trying to oh. repress the smile in my voice. Really? Why, why not? And she was like, I just don't really want to go. I said, well, look, just tell them that we've said you've got to stay in and look after your sister because we're going out and you'll do it another time. And she was like, yeah, but I don't really want to go out with them at all. <laughs> So like inwardly, I'm oh, inwardly I'm punching the air. Uh, outwardly, I'm like, oh really? Well, how come? You know, tell me more about it. Um, she said he's just. I, th- I think he thinks that we're going out. You know, he's just a bit full on. So um, I said, well, look, I tell you what, just tell them that your mum and dad have had a change of heart and said that they, we feel you're a bit too young to be going out, and you're really sorry, and hmm. maybe you'll see him like when there's a big gang of you or something down at the mall or whatever. So she did. So she messaged him on Snapchat. She, she she said that the message was marked as red, but he didn't message her back. So then I was thinking, I feel a bit sorry for him now. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry for the kid, because 
Like, I'm sure you, as I, have been, like, when we were since you were that age, you know, you kind of meet, like, a girl who shows a bit of interest and you're, like, super excited and keen and you probably, you probably go a bit, get a bit carried away with it and maybe sort of put them off a bit or whatever. Mm. And I thought, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, say I'm sure. I know that I did that more time. I was doing that when I was fucking 25, let alone 15. <laughs> I was still doing that shit. But, um... It got me thinking about, um, I thought I was going to ask you, can you remember the first sort of proper kind of date you ever went on and how old you were? Oh, God, I don't know if I can, actually. Like, first proper date. There's been, been so um, many, you know. <laughs> there, there, there has been, to be fair. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember first couple of, you know, it would have been like 13, you know, going to parties Um because that was my thing. Like when I I was at school, I hang out with older yeah. people. So when I was in like third year, I was hanging out with like all the sixth years and stuff. Like I, I don't know, it came about I think through being in school drama club. So um, I was going to parties like when I was thirteen, fourteen, like with everyone drinking and stuff, and I would have a few beers and my mum would come and pick me up at like <laughs> ten, eleven o'clock <laughs> after it. Snogged a couple of girls, um, so I was I was living the dream at that time. First proper date. I don't know if I can really remember. Right, that's sort of first, kind of first time you proper date would felt like you've really done something a bit grown up. You know, maybe you've taken a girl to the pictures or for a bite to eat or something like that. Yeah, maybe. I think I I maybe would have been about yeah sixteen. I think mm-hmm. when the first kind of official date I had. Yeah, and I went to the cinema with a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the. Yeah. But did, do you remember what you saw? One thing I remember. Would I have been 16 or 17? No, it would have been 16. Uh, we went to see A Life Less Ordinary ah. with Ewan McGregor. Right. So yeah, I must have been six. Yeah, I was definitely 16 at the time. Right. Um, yeah, I think that was the first kind of like official date. Because every other girl I'd been with, it had either been like parties or... I don't know, we hung out. Um, like There was always a party at someone's house at the weekend and we just would get together there. Mm-hmm. Like, never really go on official dates. Yeah, yeah. Never go for like a walk around the park or something. <laughs> um, yeah, that might have been it actually. Yeah. Probably, I think. Yeah, I think that, that probably rings a bell uh, as first official date. What about yourself? Um, the first one I can sort of remember when I feel like I did something a bit more grown up was I was going out with a girl when I was 16 called Stacey Collinwood. And I absolutely, like, I, because I used to have long, luxurious hair when I was uh, 16, Nikki. Um, so, and some girls like that. And she was, I was punching, like, massively punching. And I couldn't quite believe that, because I didn't ask her, like, I'd heard on the grapevine that she was uh, she was into old Greg Alas here. Um, so I broke up with the girl that I was going out with at the time <laughs> to go out with Stacey. Um, and we went out together for maybe... I mean, it seemed like longer, but it was probably like maybe two or three months, maybe maybe even two months. And um, the first sort of proper kind of date uh, was I um, I went to her house to meet her. She lived in a town called Fetterangus, which is sort of near Peterhead. And we got the bus into Peterhead to go Christmas shopping together. <laughs> um, it was my suggestion. Um, and um, we went... We went did you get to have a, a look at her baubles? No, uh, not once in all those months. We um, we went to, uh, there used to be a sort of fish and chips sort of cafe uh, on Chapel Street in Peterhead. I can't remember what it's called, but we went there and had some lunch. And I 
paid for lunch, which was fucking massive. And it was hey, big spender. It was probably like it was probably like less than a tenner. But in my mind, I was like fucking high roller. Oh, type Stacy, Stacy, put your purse away. I've got this. I've got this. I'll pay for your chips. Oh, this is no, 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 no. I insist. Oh. It's on. It's on me. And then uh, you want a smoke sausage <laughs> as well later on, Stacy? Yeah, get a milkshake. Whatever you want. Yeah, just whatever you want. The sky's the limit. Get get an oyster for pudding. And um, yeah, uh, I think and then maybe like a week later, she took me to one side in the playroom and told me I was chucked. <laughs> And had in the playroom. That no, makes in the playground. So in the playground. Um, oh, the yeah, playground. I had to kind of pretend that it was fine, but it it really wasn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She was like, "Oh, you're such a nice guy. I really, I was really dreading telling you and all this." And I'm like, "Oh no, it's fine. It's it's, it's fine. Honestly, it's fine. Like, better go and find. The, better go and find the boys. Uh, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it." <laughs> and then maybe into the top. By the way, you owe me three three quid <laughs> for know, that. Thinking, First supper. Thinking, that's fucking ten quid down the drain. <laughs> So yeah. Oh, terrible. So yeah, that was oh, my big news like this week. Oh. But on that, yeah, that is big news. On that amazing segue, with hundreds of episodes in, <laughs> should we see what's been going on in the news? Well, it's it's your catchphrase, Greg. So uh, yes, let's have a look at what's been going on for Scotland. <laughs> what's been going on for Scotland? What's been going on in Scotland in the last couple of weeks? Cue the jingle. <laughs> This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, Greg, so in the wonderful week that uh, Scotland beat Cyprus 3-0, and, you know, we're we're on our way to the Euros, and and we're playing England this week as well. I've got a genuine thought that we could probably beat them. (laughs) What have you seen in the news in Scotland that has caught your eye? Uh, Well, the news in Scotland over the last couple of weeks has been pretty dire, um, from, like, Mm. school concrete issues and all (laughs) kinds of fucking dreadful things. So my first story uh, this week is actually one that, it might not be (laughs) the headline is what makes this story. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. So it comes from the Scottish Sun on the 31st of August last week. The headline reads, Gran Theft Auto. Uh, Scott's granny stole £1.5 million from a city scrap metal firm and spent it on holidays, caravans, in new cars. So this is an Aber- this is an Aberdeen granny, uh, Colleen Muirhead. She embezzled the money from an employer's business, which she also used to set up savings accounts for her grandchildren. Uh, she admitted to misappropriating. Let me get. So this is to the penny, right? So one point five one million five hundred and twenty four thousand one hundred and ninety two pounds and thirty seven pence when she was employed at Panda Rosa Metals on Canal Street in Aberdeen between June 2015 and October 2021 uh, when she appeared in the High Dock, sorry, in the Dock at the High Court in Edinburgh. Uh, the Colleen later admitted embezzling the money and told a colleague in a message, police have just raided! Exclamation mark. <laughs> so, so, I, so I will need a visitor in jail! Exclamation mark. Please don't think the worst of me. Uh, when her colleague replied that she was totally confused, Colleen told her, don't be, don't be confused, I have taken the money. I'm so sorry. Um, advocate, mm. uh, advocate deputy David Dixon said, Panda Rosa Metals is described as a company engaged in fer- ferrous and non-ferrous metal recycling. It is owned and operated by the McAllister family. The prosecutors... Oh, Jesus. You know these... <laughs> 
Yeah, you don't want, you don't want to mess with them. <laughs> they're um, they're Will Kent folk in Aberdeen, mm. if you know what I mean. You don't want to be messing with the McAllisters. <laughs> I'm going to see you at school one of them or something there for a minute. The prosecutor said the firm operated two sites in Aberdeen and, and Muirhead was based at its Canal Road operation. She began work with the firm as an administrative assistant in 2014. Mr Dixon said scrap metal was brought to the sites by firms and individuals where it was weighed and a ticket produced, which was then sent to staff who provided an advice note containing details of material, weight and price. Sellers then produced an invoice and on its receipt the firm would instruct the transfer of funds. Mr Dixon said the accused together with two other administrative employees were allocated specific client. They were each responsible for producing advice notes and dealing with the subsequent invoices. The prosecutor said during the course of the years following the accused, the accused's beginning employment with Panda Rosa, another employee who was responsible for instructing payments of the accused wages became aware that Muirhead went on expensive holidays with her family, paid for a full table at a charity event, purchased alcohol for those attending the event, and bought new cars. The accused also told her that she had paid for her son's wedding, had purchased static caravans, and had set up ices for her grandchildren. (laughs) Mr Dixon said that... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, she's planning ahead. (laughs) Mr Dixon said a senior partner in the firm, Helen McAllister, reviewed company records and notified that funds were down. Others thought this was due to the COVID pandemic, but she was adamant that something wasn't right. She began looking for information on a customer named G. Anderson, who she noted was a significant customer during a review of the books. Mr Dixon said David McAllister, senior, confirmed he was not a Customer at the firm's Canal Road site and office staff were instructed to look for paperwork in relation to an account in that name. They were unable to find any recent paperwork but found some advice notes and historical files. The advice notes of the reference number identify Muirhead as producing the documentation. Mr McAllister Jr. phoned Muirhead, who was on leave at the time, probably on a massively expensive holiday, for, for information on the G. Anderson files. She told him where they were and asked him if she was in trouble. Mr Dixon said on the evening of October the 6th in 2021, Muirhead sent a WhatsApp message to a work colleague in which she asked the workmate to submit her resignation on her behalf. Three three days later, she sent a further message in which she stated, Hi, just to let you know, I have done Panda Rose out of a lot of money. I was G. Anderson. (laughs) A check of the bank details for G. Anderson with Muirhead's bank details found the sort code and the account numbers matched. Muirhead's house was searched while she was abroad. Mr. Dixon said the address was systematically searched during which documents in relation to credit cards, financial letters relating to the purchase of motor cars and motorcycles, documentation relating to ISIS for family members, uh, £2,312 in cash, £3,000 £3,300 in gift vouchers and documentation in relation to the purchase of two static caravans to the value of £78,000 were recovered. Uh, First offender, Colleen Muirhead of Farquhar Road, Aberdeen, was later interviewed by police and admitted embezzling the money from her employer and creating the mysterious G. Anderson. Uh, The Crown indicated it it intends to bring an action to seize the proceeds of the crime from Muirhead. Defence solicitor Chris Gilmartin told the court it is a acknowledged that a custodial sentence is inevitable. Um, so there, Gran Theft Auto. I mean, the thing is, how does she, I don't know how she get away with it from June two, uh, 2015 and October 2021 before anybody really noticed. It's crackers. And to steal that amount of money as well, it's insane. It's a huge amount of money to be able to get away with stealing. I know. Fucking hell. 
Panda Rosa Metals, I always remember they used to always have an advert on at the Odeon Cinema whenever you went to watch a film. Right, I thought there was something familiar, but I thought maybe I just passed, like, yeah. a bike, I passed one of their places regularly, but that's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they always had an advert on the Odeon, Panda Rosa Metals. I never realised that was owned by the McAllisters, <laughs> who um, are like the the lynches of Aberdeen, oh. <laughs> um, effectively. Right. If you um, if you know what I mean, so oh, she's she's been brave ripping them off, and how have they not noticed? Like one point five million. Well, gone missing. You know, maybe to your point about them being the Lynches of Aberdeen. You know, like it's probably not. But well, I w- I would imagine that if I wanted to launder some money, owning a scrap metal business would be quite a good way of doing it. I'm not saying that that's what the McAllisters are doing. I'm sure their business is reputable. Oh. Um, I'm sure they wouldn't bring action against a former employee for ripping them off for one and a half million pounds if it wasn't. But um, I can imagine it's probably quite a good way to wash money. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so this this granny's just been ripping them off, buying fucking static caravans. Um, charity tables. Investing in ISAs for her grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. Charity tables. You know, she spent the money wisely. It's not like she's frittered it away on cocaine and hookups. Well, true. She's kind of, she's she's invested in stuff. Yeah. Um, and and given some to charity. So she's, yeah, she's not done okay, if you know what I mean. But she's, yeah. She hasn't frittered it away. No, I know. But the sad thing is now, I imagine that um, the static caravans and the, the grandkids' ices are going to be uh, uh, seized and uh, I don't know, and then the money will make yeah. its way back to Panda Rosa. Yeah, yeah, make it all, about, the way, all the way back so they can buy some more adverts for the audience. <laughs> I wonder why they called it Panda Rosa because um, feared, the late uh, feared crime lord uh, in Glasgow, Arthur Thompson, uh, he called his house, which was two council, a semi two semi-detached council houses um, with the walls knocked down pushed together to make one big house <laughs> he called it the Ponda Rosa mm. so you got the Panda Rosa two words um, scrap metal firm may or may not be funded by the proceeds of crime probably not um, and then you got the Ponda Rosa in Glasgow um, which was definitely purchased and renovated with the proceeds of crime <laughs> <laughs> that's that's well documented in lots of books. That is not my opinion. <laughs> Maybe they're just a big fan of the uh, the Ponderosa Steakhouse mm. in Florida. Maybe, probably. Anyway, that's poor old Colleen. Um, a custodial uh, sentence is uh, is um, inevitable, so she'll be off to court and Vale. So she will. You're Sterling, the lady's prison. <sighs> Shame. Well, good luck to her. Anyway, that's uh, old Colleen. What's your first story this week? So my first story this week also comes from Aberdeen, but it's not about an embezzling granny. It's about a TikTok star who has gone viral at creating the official sandwich of Aberdeen. But viewers were quick to notice a glaring error in his video. TikTok star Big Nibbles, (laughs) and it's... Has posted several clips creating sandwiches that represent towns and cities up and down the UK. And his latest creation saw him attempt to make the Granite Cities version. Slicing some white bread, he quickly turned his attention to the filling, which he filled with three deep fried Mars bars and gave fans a look at how to make the heart stopping stack at home. His videos have often seen him take a cheeky swipe at each city, and this time it was no different. He said, famous for the invention of the deep fried Mars bar, a snack that dissolves your teeth, sums up the place beautifully. I'll just leave it to your imagination as to what horrors lie there. All right, big nibbles, you fucking cunt. <laughs> um, 
It was a quick and easy sandwich to make and one that looked somewhat intriguing and also horrific. But fans quickly noticed an error in the video. Hundreds of TikTok users were quick to agree as one commenter said, Battered Mars bars with Stonehaven, mm. not Aberdeen. With the reply receiving almost 600 likes. It even got a comment from one Stonehaven local who said, I live in Stonehaven and I was so mad until I saw this comment. <laughs> Others were amazed by the sandwich with one admitting I thought it was beef or pork at the start with gravy and there is a picture of it and it does genuinely look like a beef sandwich with gravy in it. It's like when you put the, the three Mars bars in it. Is it just me who thought it was a pulled pork sandwich? Wrote another. Well, a third asked, what about Aberdeen Angus beef? A fourth said, I'm not going to lie, I thought it was chicken and gravy sandwich at first. Uh, another user said, from Aberdeen, and you're making us sound bad. Many others were baffled, thinking it was meat in the sandwich, but uh, despite the confusing look at first, it was actually a homemade deep-fried Mars bar that was oozing out of the sandwich. Loved and hated, it has become one of Scotland's most controversial dishes, and it is said to have originated at the Haven Fish and Chip Bar, now known as the Karen Fish and Chip Bar. The craze gripped the nation after 15-year-old John Davy dared his school pal Brian MacDonald to eat the bizarre concoction back in 1992. It caught them by surprise at how good it was (laughs) and sparked a frenzy in Stonehaven and soon made waves in the media when the Daily Record dubbed it Scotland's craziest takeaway in 1995. The hysteria never faded, as 12 years on from its creation, it was even featured on the American TV show, uh, Jay Leno's Tonight Show, and continues to draw visitors to the Aberdeenshire town today. So, deep fried Mars bar sandwich, that's the Aberdeen fucking sandwich that this big fucking big nipples or whatever he's <laughs> calling himself is, um, is, is saying. Like, come on, surely it's Aberdeen Angus beef that you would go for an Aberdeen sandwich you're not going to go by deep fried Mars bar like come on that's scandalous yeah. I think we've you know we've spoken about this on the, the show before yeah. but have you ever had a deep fried no, Mars bar? No I, I haven't and it's not been because of I've not like actively avoided it I think the opportunity has just never ever come up for me to have a deep fried Mars bar um, Yeah, but the thing is like to your point Aberdeen or Aberdeen Aberdeen and Aberdeen Shire famous for Obviously, seafood, you know, right on the right uh-huh. on the on the, the right on the North Sea there, and also that like you said earlier, famous for Aberdeen Angus beef. You know what I mean? So you get, well, that would have been my yeah. sandwich has to incorporate at least one of those things. Maybe like a surf and turf sandwich is like an Aberdeen sandwich. You know, well, that would have been my first thought. Some nice seafood, some nice haddock or something, yeah. and ex- exactly like a you know Aberdeen Angus beef or something. Not a deep fried Mars bar. It's just where's, where's, that's, that's just lazy. Where is, is this? Like Big Nibbles is a he's not from Aberdeen, is he? No, he's not. He's a TikTok star. I don't know what he's from actually. Um but he's doing UK City, so I, d- I presume he's um UK based, I think. Oh, I think twice about yeah about I don't know. taking that tour north of Dundee with that sort of uh I, I used to find that people like English people who would try to roast me a bit for being Scottish because you know there are, there's always a couple of English people that just can't help themselves got to yeah. roast you a bit um, especially when you're an expat and they would like m- they would mention um, deep fried Mars bars in the amidst the roasting you know what I mean they're just like fucking you can buy a deep fried Mars bar here in Dubai <laughs> you know? well that was it I mean I remember when I lived in Norwich I mean it was um, 
I mean, that was back, obviously, in the early 2000s. And I guess that was still the term of abuse. And I remember a guy I worked with, I still remember his name, Mike Harmer. Um, he was a fucking cock. And he didn't like me for some reason. And I remember we were a, a night out and he'd had a few beers. And he came up to me and said, oh, you fucking jock, you know, you're you're from Aberdeen. Do you eat deep fried Mars bars? And I, I said to him, well, no, that's a stereotype. I was like, you're from Norfolk. Do you fuck your sister? <laughs> nice. And he took great offence to that and asked me for a fight. <laughs> and it kind of and I I accepted and was like, "Come on, outside now!" And then he backed down. And uh, which, as you know me, Greg, it's not like me, yeah. but I just took such offence to that. And I kind of I think the fact I stood up to him because I was so angry, it, it went down in folklore for the the rest of the time I was in Norwich about Fuck. me wanting to fight this guy. But, and it, to be fair, he he um, he sent me an apology email uh, like on the Monday oh, well. um, saying he was very sorry yeah. and I, I didn't reply. He was a cunt. I mean, um, famously, yeah. famously back in your Norwich days, you were you were a lover, not a fighter, right? I've always been a lover, not a fighter, Greg. <laughs> I've never been a fighter. I've never been a fighter. You, 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 uh, I, I think I've only really thrown like one punch at someone and you saw <laughs> me throw that punch. And even then it was a cheap shot to the back of the head at some guy that had pushed me. Like Again, that was just anger of, of yeah. um, annoying like and it was more to teach him a lesson as I check, don't push people was my amazing retort to him. Nicky's, Nicky's Christmas message: <laughs> Don't push people. Pretty sure it was it was anyway, either, it was either Christmas Day night or Boxing Day night. I can't quite remember. I think it was Christmas Day was, night. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, so there you go. If you want an Aberdeen sandwich, then it is. White bread and a couple of deep fried Mars bars, which I don't agree with. I mean, at so, all. I, mean I think a, a nice sweet things in with bread. And I don't know, like for me personally, I just I mean, I could have something sweet if there was something. Say, say it was like a sort of turkey sandwich, and there was a bit of cranberry on there. I could, I could handle that. Yeah. So I've got savoury and sweet, but just like some, something so sweet, like a Mars, like Mars bars, even when they're not deep fried, are super sweet. To have that between two slices of bread, it's just a bit much. Well, that's what the the Dutch basically have for breakfast. They have chocolate sprinkles on bread. I mean, that's that is mental. I can't eat, I can't yeah. eat sweet things in the morning. Like I, I honestly can't. I've never been able to. I never. When I was growing up, nah. we never had the sweet cereals in the house. Um, they are, if my mum could be arsed we'd have porridge and I would sometimes take a wee bit of sugar and porridge but um, other than that it was like Rice Krispies with only milk or cornflakes or something like all those like Ricicles Lucky Charms things like that I just yeah, no. But then Americans like have tons of sugary sweet stuff in the morning, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. I I did used to like Frosties when I was a kid, but I would be honest, like I couldn't stomach that yeah. nowadays. Crunchy nut cornflakes, I can do. Yep. Cause, yep. But then that, but then that's brown sugar and honey. Yeah. And oats. Like, but but I can I can handle that. <laughs> you t- but I, you I tell can yourself whatever you need to. Nowadays. <laughs> 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 but no, I do. I do like uh, crunchy nut cornflakes, and there is something ridiculously Moorish about them. And I and I discovered that yeah. at least twenty years before they built a whole marketing campaign around it. I was it's, it's, yeah, it's, it surprised yeah. me how long it took them to come to that advertising campaign. Like in the sort of nineties, yeah, you can't really just have one no, bowl, you can. can you? You need to have like another little half yeah. bowl, maybe nice cold milk. Yeah. Yeah, but I could never understand like Lucky Charms and stuff having like marshmallows for breakfast. America, though, mate. Get to America. America. 
That's what they have. I mean, I remember I, when we were in America on our honeymoon, I had cornflakes in the hotel one morning. Just cornflakes on their own with some cold milk. And the, the cornflakes, because I always like to leave a few dry bits of cereal on top. So like a few dry ones on yeah. top and then the ones underneath absorbing the milk. And even like the dry one on it's, its own yeah. tasted a lot sweeter than the cornflakes we have uh, back in Europe. Mm. Like a lot sweeter. I was like, what's the matter with these people? Mm. <laughs> My wife was like, why are you getting so fucking upset? Just have something else for your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be on our honeymoon. You're ranting on about cornflakes. <laughs> Anyway. Oh, never mind. Well, that is the Aberdeen sandwich, Greg. Um, so what else have you seen this week in the news? Um, well, it's not so much a news story, although it does come from the Scotsman newspaper, but they, I found 10 laws which are still legal laws in Scotland, although you're unlikely to be um, prosecuted um, for some of these. But I'll, I'll take you through them. There's 10 of them all together. Um, so the first one is, n- n- number one, in Scotland, it is illegal to refuse to allow a stranger to use your toilet if they ask you to. Ah. Do you know that? Can you imagine? I mean, that's something you wouldn't want to get, you wouldn't want people to know too much about. I just, um, that just instantly reminds me of that chew in the fat sketch. Yeah. When <laughs> the guy comes in to use the toilet and Ford Kiernan yeah. sits with the, the full glass window watching him. Eating an orange. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it just reminds me, and I've told the story on the podcast before, but of uh, our old milkman's uh, sort of helper when we lived in the flat, asking to use the toilet all the time, and then my yeah. mother finally allowed me to do it and fucking ruining her flat for the weekend. <laughs> um, uh, so number two is it is illegal um, to sing on a train. You must have written permission from the train operator to sing legally on the train. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And do, do you know what? Do you know what? Do you know yeah. what you're not allowed to do in the train in Scotland anymore? Have a fucking beer. It's not allowed. I, f- I found out that when I was oh, really? yeah, when I was yeah. back in March, we got the train from Aberdeen down to um, Edinburgh to change to go to Newcastle, and we booked like first class because it wasn't that much more expensive. And I thought, well, why not? Do you know, I've got the money, mate. So you know, yeah. live my life. Um, so we had booked first class for both legs, and on the Scott Rail, I was looking forward to having a couple of complimentary. Although it was only like ten in the morning, but I thought my wife will be fine because we're in first class <laughs> you know it's first class she'll be fine she'll she'll have a drink as well um and all that was offered to us was tea and biscuits or coffee um wow. although it was very the, it was comfortable and then when we got in the the english uh train take us to newcastle it was like a full course meal lots of nice drinks and stuff the only thing was it was edinburgh and newcastle which takes about it feels about five minutes so we couldn't really enjoy it um but uh yeah but it's illegal to have a to, to sing on the train number three it's illegal to handle a salmon whilst looking suspicious so okay keep that in mind Right. Next time you're doing your shopping. Um, number four, it's illegal to doodle on a banknote. Oh, well, that's, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, number, what are we up to? Number five, it is illegal to gamble in a library in Scotland. Apparently in 1898, okay. uh, children were enjoying their time in a library a bit too much, uh, betting and stuff like that. So in order to protect the studious atmosphere, uh, a law was imposed that forbade betting and gambling in the library. So as usual, one person ruins it for the rest of us. Mm. Number six, <laughs> if you're under the age of 10, it is illegal for you to see a naked mannequin. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> this law okay. this law was this law was made in the Victorian age amid amidst like numerous decency laws. Um and it makes it illegal for any boy under the age of ten to see a naked mannequin. So they can't watch Kim Cattrell in Sex and the City then? No <laughs> no, no, certainly not. But then you might you might not let uh, a sp- sub 10 year old watch that anyway um yeah. it's because it's fucking rubbish um number seven yeah uh <laughs> it's illegal to fire a cannon within 300 yards of any homes um seems like a sensible law doesn't it yeah but then does edinburgh castle not fire a cannon like every day it does but is it but does anybody live around there in the old town they must do I mean, 300, 300 yards 300 away yards? sure the castle's quite high 300 yards is it 300 yards maybe high, not the castle i don't know maybe i mean it brings a lot of tourists in so it's probably one that we probably let go uh number eight it is illegal to manage cattle when you're on the cans so if you're drunk not allowed <laughs> 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 Not allowed. Uh, this this law was put in place to protect public order, um, and it made it illegal to handle cattle and or horses, um, as well as managing carriages and steam engines. The latter two seem sensible uh, when you've had uh, a few hands. Yeah, cans. you can't be steaming on a steam engine. No, you certainly can't. Sounds like a sort of kids song, a sort of a sort of, <laughs> uh, a little sort of nursery rhyme uh, with a with an important message. Thomas the tank top engine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, number nine. Actually, do, 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 do you remember in Thomas the Tank Engine when one of the trains was like bricked into his arch under the railway bridge yeah. for being, I don't know, he'd been like mugging people off or I don't know, misbehaving or something. And and they bricked him. I want to say. They bricked yeah. him in to punish him. Yeah, I want to say it was either Gordon or Henry, yeah, wasn't it? Or... It like Gordon. Gord, was Gordon it? was a bit of a spiv, wasn't he? Gordon. Yeah, yeah it wasn't Percy. Oh, uh, yeah, it might have been Gordon. Yeah. I mean, a bit mm. bricking him in, it seems a bit, yeah, it seems a bit harsh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like yeah, a sort of terrifying punishment. I've been, I've been watching a lot of Oz recently, <laughs> mate. It's, um, it's, it's not the most terrifying punishment I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. N- n- number nine. Uh, a law that's that is definitely being broken as we record. Um, somewhere in Scotland, uh, it is illegal to be drunk in a pub or any public place. <laughs> wow. Really. Yeah. Th- what? That is a uh, illegal in it Scotland. It is illegal. Wow. Uh, be- I mean, I-, I do remember when we were getting our training uh, for our licensing languages uh, languages or license or like alcohol licenses sorry I do remember them telling us that it's illegal to be drunk in the pub um, and thinking fucking hell I've broken that law more times than can remember prisons would be full I know it's a, it says being drunk in a pub seems a relatively logical place to be drunk however according to a couple of laws from the 19th and 20th century keepers of public houses cannot allow any drunkenness on their property and they cannot serve alcohol to those who are already drunk. Not only that, one of the laws prohibited being drunk in any public place or pub, or pub, which is still in place today. And certainly, I think you and I have both been turned away <laughs> in our younger days from bars um, for uh, being in our cups somewhat um, whilst trying to place an order. I've certainly been refused entry to more nightclubs than I can remember after being interrogated by the bouncers we've been tonight which pub should you go to, how much you have to drink, how much you had to eat, and, you know, usually stumbling at the first question and not getting let, not getting let in. So that's definitely one that's definitely. still in force. Um, and then number 10, it's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal. If it, Should you come across a beached whale on one of Scotland's many beautiful beaches or perhaps a sturgeon, you must offer it to the reigning monarch or you're breaking the law. So this law comes from the 1300s 
Edward II decided to proclaim that all fish, sturgeons, whales, dolphins and porpoises captured within five kilometres of the British shore immediately belonged to the ruling royal. So the next time you come across like a sort of decomposed fucking sea trout on the, if you're walking on the beach, stick it in the post <laughs> to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I'm just following the law. <laughs> Think he's fucking Aquaman or something. <laughs> <laughs> obviously really really liked fish um, Edward II I mean I mean mind you to be fair to King Charlie I bet he could breathe through his ears because of that fucking thick so maybe he is Aquaman who knows <laughs> imagine not breaking any laws why Why have you posted why have you why have you posted this decomposing sea snake to Buckingham Palace because it's a it's the law <laughs> you know it's the law <laughs> belongs to him. I find it on the beach. It belongs to <laughs> exactly. him. Exactly. Has to be. Has to be offered to him. So yeah, so that's my second uh, story this week. Beware um, looking suspicious if you're handling a salmon or, you know, um, looking at a man, a naked mannequin if you're under the age of 10. What's your next story this week? Uh, okay, my next story this week, Greg, is from Glasgow Live and it is uh, a wonderful, um, I think, initiative from Glasgow Caledonian University. They have set up a Taggart archive and they put out a, a plea asking people to to come back with uh, any memories or, or any thoughts they had and well I'll let the article speak for itself. So Glasgow archive chiefs calling for locals to share tales of their time working on Taggart have hailed an amazing response in just 48 hours. With its iconic theme tune and gritty storylines, Taggart set the standard for modern TV police drama and turned its much-loved cast into household names. To coincide with the 40th anniversary of the detective show first airing, Glasgow Caledonian University announced the launch of Taggart, the People's Archive. Retired detectives will host drop-in sessions at the university's archive centre next month uh, in a mock police station to take witness statements, resulting in a creation of a new archive. Members of the public who were involved in location shoots, worked as extras, played a corpse or provided props or expertise to the show uh, are being urged to come forward so that their stories can be captured. Aiming to recognise and honour the role the general public played in the outstanding success of the show, Caledonian uni bosses have launched an appeal on Tuesday morning. The Facebook post alone was shared over 270 times and amassed well over 100 comments as locals reacted in their droves. And on Thursday, just 48 hours later, the university shared an update that said the response had been amazing. Taggart star uh, Blythe Duff will volunteer uh, over three days. Uh, From September the 6th to the 8th, Blythe played the formidable Jackie Reed in the show and is an honorary graduate of the cultural GCU. She said, everyone I meet has a Taggart story, like, oh, you filmed at my auntie's house, <laughs> or you filmed in our street, or I was an extra for that day. I've worked with so many people who watched us uh, and film it and just inspired them to become directors or writers or even join the police. It made me realise just how important these stories are to the fabric of our series. In 2018, Blythe donated 95 episodes worth of scripts to the university archives, along with a treasure trove of Taggart material, including photographs, awards, memorabilia and press cuttings. A selection of these items will be on display during drop-in sessions. The retired detectives, helped by university archivists, will uh, collect all the stories and some of the contributions will be added to display boards and maps in the incident room set up on campus. Blythe, who devised the new archive, praised the police force for being incredibly supportive during the Taggart years. She added, 
The police were always so supportive of the series whenever we filmed, and they were always ready to step up to the mark. And they were going to have some fun as we recreate an instant room where the public can give us some witness statements and hopefully some memorabilia which we use as evidence to collaborate their story. Taggart's pilot killer, which we covered on episode 8 of The Culture Swally, was first screened on STV on September the 6th, 1983. Locations featured in Chief Detective Chief Inspector Jim Taggart's first outing include a riverbank off Kelvindale Road, a canal off Mary Hill Road, the Botanic Gardens, Partick Cross and Site Hill Cemetery. Carol McCallum, archivist at uh, Glasgow Caledon University, stressed that no story was too small in this latest project. She said, what better way is there to give Glasgow and Scotland a voice in the Taggart story than through the people who loved and supported it the most? So drop-in sessions for Taggart, the People's Archive, will take place at the GCU Archive Centre in the St. Alex Ferguson Library. Opening times uh, will have passed by the time (laughs) that we have released this podcast. But anyway, um, I just thought this is wonderful that the the university is celebrating probably one of the most iconic TV shows that Scotland has ever produced. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, fucking... I I don't know why we haven't done more Taggarts than... when you were talking there I was thinking Mm. definitely need to get one of the iconic stories done in the next few episodes of the pod do you think um, do you think Blythe Duff still gets paid of Tiger, I know that they don't make it anymore, but I don't. I've never seen her in anything else, unless she's in River City. But I don't watch River City. But I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if uh, if it's still. I mean, maybe she's retired now. I don't know. I don't know how old she is. Um, I've no idea to be honest. Let's have a little look because we've got this wonderful invention called the internet. Blythe Duff is sixty, mm. and it doesn't look like she's done much no. since Tiger. To be honest, uh, she does a fair bit of theatre. Ah, okay. She's still jobbing away. She was in um she was in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, like a few years ago. Is that the play? Um, That's the play, right? That's not one of the films. Yeah, yeah. I once um I think I've said in the podcast before, I once uh, let James McPherson jump the queue um with his family at Frankie and Benny's at the Key one Sunday afternoon when he came in looking he he, he obviously wasn't hopeful. Um I don't know if whether he it had been his job to sort out booking a table and he'd fucked it um but he came in <laughs> he came in um i had a bit of a waiting list going and he came in and asked if he sort of like with low expectations he was like oh, don't suppose you've got a table for for four just now do you and i was like yeah I'll get you I'll get your problem I said, of course Mr. we'll get you don't, yeah don't you worry jardine i'll get you and no bother me um i'll get you in jardine <laughs> so obviously i was hoping that this would be the beginning of a burgeoning friendship that would maybe get me a wee gig as an extra on tiger or something like that but uh that was the one only time that i ever saw him um i didn't even see him leave so i couldn't even like be there to be thanked for squeezing him in you know I was way. Yeah, he probably didn't have the clout to get you. I was way for a f- in as an extra. Yeah. Yeah. I was way for a fag when he left, so got <laughs> it. <laughs> um, is there any other Scottish shows you think deserve like a an archive collection like that? I mean, I suppose like the obvious one. And I, I, I did when I was when I was at home. I was having a look at a mess about with the STV player and I watched them um, not like whole episodes but some bits of like very old Take the High Roads 
from like the very, oh, wow. very very early eighties. And I suppose like I mean I don't I mean I guess it's its star has maybe faded somewhat because um, it's not been on the telly for well over twenty years. But I mean it, I remember Take the High Road being on TV when I lived in England on ITV. Um, oh really? Yeah. So yeah, like it was never knew it was, that. Like, it was wow. a big deal. Um, well, I mean I suppose like in those days you had sort of Take the High Road from Scotland. You had Coronation Street from. Supposedly Manchester, and then you had Emmerdale from Yorkshire, and EastEnders from London. So, like you know, they you had like soaps that were very much sort of local driven regional. regional that's what I was thinking. Yeah. For, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the sort of like, I mean, like. I, I, England had like sort of three major ones, and Scotland had one. Though <laughs> Scotland still only has one, mm. and I, I don't think the BBC put River City on in any of their uh, in their BBC One uh, local regional uh, stations in the UK. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I imagine probably take the high road. What would be good would be an arch- and I don't know if anything would be available really apart from some scripts and stuff but they can archive of like Peter McDougall plays you know so maybe like mm. maybe some of the wardrobe from just a boys game you know what I mean some yeah. of the sashes from <laughs> just another Saturday something like that you know uh- <laughs> <laughs> Billy Conley's little sort of tartan uh, waistcoat that he's wearing in the pub. Eh, sorry, little denim waistcoat that he's that he's wearing in the pub. Yeah, that would be yeah. quite good. Do you know what I mean? I, I always think Peter McDougall doesn't get anywhere near the sort of modern attention that he deserves for those mm. plays that he wrote. You know, we've, we've we've done most of them, yeah. and every one of them's a fucking absolute banger. Ah, just incredible! Like, I don't there's there's not a single one that we haven't covered that we haven't absolutely yeah. loved. And you know, I want to go back and watch again. They're they're so good. So yeah, I agree. I don't think he gets enough uh, a credit as he deserves. No. So you're right. What about you? Do you, have you get any thoughts well, on on a TV show that could be archived like this? Um, uh, I mean, I'd say Rabsy Nesbitt is probably yeah. up there for me. Um, but I, I think you could probably combine that into like a Scottish comedy mm. museum or archive because I think still game yeah. would also be needed. And, then, and that way you can wire in things like City Lights yeah. and Naked Video and, you know, even Two Doors Down, you know, as a kind of that'd be a wonderful museum, you know, Scottish comedy throughout the, the kind of 80s yeah. going from the early 80s to, or 70s to, you know, and, and that way you can incorporate things like Scotch yeah. and Rye and... Yeah, Francie um, and Josie and Stanley you know. Baker and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I think that would be a wonderful little museum yeah. to have. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. maybe in the future we could... Uh, we can I could see out. it. Maybe we should create it. Yeah, I could create it, Cre- create it, and curate it. <laughs> is what I was looking for there. I could see, I could see them doing something like that at the Kelvin Grove. You know, they get the, when I was in the, I was in the yeah. Kelvin Grove in the summer, and they had a sort of Mary Quant um, special exhibition on down in the basement. But I've seen them do some stuff. They've done like Doctor Who and things as well. They can the years gone by. So mm. quite cool. Okay, well, have you got anything else you've seen in the news this week, Greg? Well, not so much in the news. It's very quick. But there is a Twitter account that I quite enjoy um, called The Upshot. Um, and it basically just tells sort of funny stories about famous um, athletes and some of the... Some of the some of the misadventures of the more colourful characters over the years of the sporting world. Um, but there was one about when George Best, when he was at Hibs. <laughs> so this is um, this is a story of George Best's biggest bender that he went on when he was when he was playing at Hibs. Right. <laughs> so when the 35 year old rocked up at Hibernian in 1979, his new manager described it as a disaster waiting to happen. 
It was soon proven right. <laughs> Before a big cup game against Air United, uh, changed days, uh, the gaffer ordered Bess to spend the night in his room at Edinburgh's famous Balmoral Hotel. It was all going to plan until George bumped into hard-drinking French rugby player Jean-Pierre Rivez in the lobby. Best agreed to join him for a, a very quick half pint, but that was never going to happen. <laughs> and things escalated when Debbie Harry, lead singer of Blondie, joined them at the bar. <laughs> Best had no recollection of what happened next other than Bedlam. <laughs> At 11am the next day, the Hibs coach arrived to take him to the game. He found Best passed out beside Debbie Harry, unable to say anything except, I'm so pissed. <laughs> After a vat of coffee and several slaps, George opened his eyes, gestured toward the blondie singer. What would you rather do? Spend the afternoon with her or play your United? Suffice to say that George didn't make the game. <laughs> What a legend. <laughs> Fair play. Yeah, if it's uh yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. If it was a, a choice between prime Debbie Harry <laughs> yeah. or playing against Air United, then see you later, Air United, yeah. yeah, yeah that exactly. So yeah, no, that made me laugh. But yeah, uh, the op- I mean we don't get anything out of this, but if you enjoy funny stories about uh colourful sporting characters over the years, I would steer you towards the upshot on Twitter. It's often a good laugh. Okay, anything else this week, Greg? that's it. Right. Well, before we go on to what we're going to be talking about on the podcast today, let's have a little word from our sponsors. And our sponsor on this episode is Doric Skateboards. Doric Skateboards is a skateboard brand created by Gary Kemp, whose main focus is to explore the people and culture of Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland, and to create designs that reflect that area. Doric Skateboards screen print their own decks in their studio by Gary's fair hand, and they produce some amazing designs over the years including an Annie Lennox inspired board, a Robert the Bruce deck and a plenty of pop deck inspired by the old Bonacord trucks that used to drive around Aberdeen delivering fizzy drinks. Dorrit skateboards also replicate these amazing designs onto their clothing on 100% organic cotton tees, hoodies and sweatshirts and you can fill your boots on stickers, pin badges, beanies, caps and a whole lot more. Gary regularly collaborates with local artists to ensure he brings the latest designs to the market but always with a Doric twist including their amazing new Northfield Tower design. Check out Doric Skateboards for yourself on DoricSkateboards.com and follow them on Instagram at Doric Skateboards to see the amazing designs that they have on offer. And we are delighted to be able to offer you 15% off as listeners to this podcast. All you need to do is head to DoricSkateboards.com, have a look at the amazing decks, stickers, badges, hoodies, tees and hats, everything they have on offer, and enter the promo code SWALLY. That's S-W-A-L-L-Y, all in block capitals. Same with the name of this podcast, to get your 15% off. That's DoricSkateboards.com. Okay, Greg, so... It was your choice on the Swally this week. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be looking at on the podcast today? So I chose the 2018 movie, uh, The Vanishing, stars Gerald Butler, who I don't think we've had on the podcast before, I don't think. Uh, Peter Mullen, who we've... We have. Have we? Oh yeah, The Young Person's Guide, yep. Um, We've had, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, Peter Mullen, who we've had on many times, and uh, Connor Swindells, 
making his Swally debut. Um, the film's loosely based on the, ni- the 1900 disappearance of the Flannan Isles lighthouse crew from uh, Edenmore Island. Uh, Butler Mullen and Swindells play three lighthouse keepers whose shift take a dark turn. Uh, it was directed by Christopher Nyholm and written by Kellen Jones and Joe Bone. So, I mean, I didn't. I literally stumbled across this uh, when I was having a look at uh, some possible uh, swally material um, a few weeks ago. I hadn't heard of this movie. Completely passed me by. I mean, it's five years old, so I'd never seen it. I, I don't think you've seen it. What was your first thoughts? Yeah, completely passed me by as well. I had no idea about it um, until maybe about a year ago when I was looking at stuff for the Swally and it came um, to my attention. I think I probably was looking at Peter Mullen's IMDb or something yeah. and it, it, it came up that, that this film existed, but I, I had no idea about it. Uh, yeah, so first time watching it. I was, funnily enough, I listened to a podcast maybe about two months ago and it was a guy discussing the disappearance of these three lighthouses guys on the on this lighthouse in Scotland right. and I, I, I kind of put two together and they mentioned yeah I think it was made into a film um, in 2018 with, with Peter Mullen I was like oh wow that's that film so it had been on my radar since then I thought right I need to cover this at some point on the Swally I'd never seen it until watching it this week for the first time and I have to say I, I, I really enjoyed mm. it it's a it's a really it's very slow paced i think in the beginning and and it's it's but there's just so much atmosphere mm. about it and just so much kind of creepiness and yeah. it's 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 so beautifully shot and it's so beautifully acted and the the tension at, at some points of this film is just absolutely incredible and i think three great performances from the three lead actors as well i mean gerard butler has he ever been better than he is in this he's you know he's fantastic yeah. in this film mullen is mullen as he always is but i thought it was a really interesting story and i mean obviously it's it's inspired by a true story yeah. and we'll we'll come on to that later because although it's based on a true story it, it's not really mm. the, the only real thing that happened is that these three lighthouse keepers disappeared yeah. No one has any idea what happened to them. Everything else in the film is completely made up. All the subplots with the gold and these mm-hmm. other guys coming onto the island are completely made up. But I thought it was a really gripping film. And, you know, it's an hour and 46 yeah. minutes, which 16 minutes too long for my, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. with like a 90 minute film, Greg, with like a tight 90 minute yeah. film. But it, it had me gripped and it, it did keep me engaged. And I, 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 really enjoyed it but what about yourself what did you think i enjoyed it too um when i was i watched a trailer for it with my daughter um like a couple of weeks ago and she said oh she said that like, i may watch that with you and i was like really and she was like yeah yeah my daughter's like 15 so you know she's sort of getting older her taste in movies is becoming a bit more a bit more sophisticated so we watched it together just last night and yeah, they, we both thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, like it was interesting watching it with her because there's a few sort of, I guess, a few tropes, especially in the sort of second and third act that, you know, like mm. we've seen in films that have had sort of similar plots and stuff. But it was interesting with her seeing her reaction because she's obviously not seen anywhere near as many movies as you and I have seen. So she's like, what are you doing? What's he doing that for? Well, for goodness sake. Do you know what I mean? Getting really annoyed and stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we both really enjoyed it. I I watched 
so Mark Kermode reviewed it for his for the Kermode and Simon Mayo uh, movie review show that they do on the BBC, and he's. You made me think of this when you mentioned Gerald Butler there because his career, sort of against all odds, really, he's become this big Hollywood... He's not quite an A-list actor, but I don't think he's quite a B-list actor either. He sort of sits in this kind of weird hinterland between the two. But, you know, most of the movies he does, um, as Mark Kermode describes him shouting on a submarine, shouting on a helicopter, (laughs) you know, shouting on a lawn of the White House, um, that kind of thing. He said, so it was good to see him playing quiet and even you know well obviously we're going to spoil the film um so you should you know hopefully you know that by now if you're listening it's all makes sense to watch before you listen but um even towards the in the sort of towards the end of the second and the third act when his character james has sort of gone a bit crazy he's still he's quiet you know what i mean he's not like mm. Mm-hmm. He's not like what we've, the Gerald Butler that we've come to see. What hit in the kind of movies he's really made his money from over the last sort of ten years or so. Like one of the one of my favourite films of his uh, that I really enjoyed him in, that, and it's an ensemble, is uh, Rock and Roller, the Guy Ritchie movie that he's, that he's in with. Uh, Just about to say that is probably my favourite yeah. Butler performance. So after this film, I think the Rock and Roller really reminds people that he does have quite a lot of range as an actor but for whatever reason he seems to he seems he seems to sort of tend toward and i imagine it's because they pay him a lot of money you know and i think he's about he's around about the same age as you and i maybe slightly older you know so he's you know he's got to he's got he's got to earn his money i'm sure he's got a family and everything else you know so it was good to see him in this and it really reminded me because i've I've not watched a gerald butler film in fucking years i mean to be honest if i see what if if like olympus has fallen or something is on the telly I'll, I'll fucking turn over you know and what you know to avoid yeah. it like the last like, big Hollywood film of his that I enjoyed was um, Law Abiding Citizen with my Jamie Foxx I quite liked that one um, mm. that was quite good uh, it was a bit was quite clever um and of course the 300s i mean it's fucking ridiculous but it's it's good fun and it's short it's quick 90 minutes you know it's uh if there's nothing else on it's worth watching again but um otherwise you know i wouldn't i wouldn't be like booking my tickets in advance for gerald butler's next big film so it was really good to see him in this like really showing that he's actually a fucking good actor yeah i thought he really he was brilliant in this Mm. i I, again exactly as you've said he's not shouty he's quiet all the time um you really believe him in you know initially he's kind of the the muscle Mm. of the the three and i and i really like his relationship with donald in the beginning and you know he's pretty witty as well and i can't work out what the relationship is like they obviously knew each other beforehand but they're kind of he's almost like a older brother kind of father figure yeah kind of mentor type and you know he's very playful when they're they're cleaning the the lighthouse and Donald's breathing on it and he kind of, you know, smacks him and, um, you know, a, a particularly good thing, you know, what does this do then? Well, it's a falcorn. Yeah. When do we use it? <laughs> when it's foggy. It's, you know, it's, 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 Butler's deadpan delivery in those kind of parts is great. Mm. And he he does play the muscle well, you know, when things start going a little bit awry on the island, he provides kind of the backup. He's the kind of B.A. Baracus of the team yeah. that yeah. is sorting out the muscle. But then he also, as, as latterly it goes on, he plays the unhinged mental guy Mm. very well and you really believe that he's lost it and uh, spoiler we'll come back to it later on but when he comes kind of back in 
towards the end of the film, and he's like, "It's okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I've I've thought about it. I I genuinely believed like, okay, he's okay. Yeah, and I did. Summons. It's going to be okay. I I yeah, I, 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 I did. Really did. Up, up to the point where. Thomas goes off to the pantry and he sort of looks sideways yeah. at Donald and I'm like, right, Donald, you're fucked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that shows, you know, the, the kind of the, the range that Butler does have yeah. and that he is capable of and he is a good actor. I mean, I think what Butler would um, genuinely benefit from is like a really good TV show. Mm. I, you know, a, a, a prime kind of yeah. HBO or Showtime, like a, a decent role in a tv show i think he would really benefit from from something like that to really make a mark yeah i mean the first one that i ever saw him in and i went on a double date um to see this with uh our mutual friend uh the artist occasionally known as um techno jock him and i took a couple of (laughs) took a couple of birds uh to see dracula 2000 at the cinema um, in Aberdeen, and I remember quite enjoying it. I thought it was quite good. I think Johnny Lee Miller was in it. Uh, Christopher Plummer was in it. Butler plays the eponymous Dracula. It sort of spins this sort of, sort of a newish theory that uh, Dracula is actually uh, Judas Iscariot. You know, this, and his punishment for betraying Jesus is being a immortal vampire. Doesn't sound like that much of a punishment to me, but. Um, but it wasn't. I remember quite enjoying, like, being quite surprised and quite enjoying the film. But then, if you go through his mm. sort of filmography, I mean, the the three hundred is his break. That's what really launches him. And then he goes and does yeah. uh, P.S. I Love You with Hilary. Uh, what was her name? Hilary Swank. Completely different from the swords and sandals nonsense of um, the three hundred. Then he does a rock and roller when he plays one two, which is a fucking completely underrated Guy Ritchie movie in my opinion. I don't mm. know why it's not mentioned in the same conversations as movies like Lock, Stock and Snatch when you're talking about Guy Ritchie. I don't really understand. I think it's fucking brilliant. It's it's too confusing. I think a lot of people find it to be a little bit too confusing. Oh, fucking idiot. Pay, pay closer attention. And then he goes off yeah. he sort of, then he sort of goes from, he does Law Abiding Citizen, he does Gamer, which is fucking dreadful. He's He sort of keeps the lights on with doing voices and how to train the, your dragon franchise over the years. But then it's stuff like Machine Gun Preacher, Olympus has fallen, London has fallen, Den of Thieves, and in the middle of all these, Angel has fallen, Greenland, but in the middle of all these like big bombastic Hollywood sort of popcorn and chewing gum kind of movies, he does this really thoughtful psychological drama back in his native country with fucking Peter Mullen, probably, if not definitely, or most accomplished actor from Scotland who's working at the moment. Mm. You know what I mean? And Andy, and to your point, he's fucking brilliant in it. So I tend to think, well, surely, I mean, he must by now, Butler, be a multi-millionaire. He could probably retire, Mm. surely, but by now if he wanted to. So why not, instead of just picking these ridiculous fucking movies that are sort that's, that sort of come and go why not do more interesting stuff like this you know yeah. and the thing is as well River City or <laughs> arguably it's not even his film arguably he's a supporting actor Mullen really is the lead like Mullen as Thomas is the kind of lead in the film Really, yeah. Like I know Butler's name's above him on the poster because I guess he's he's more recognisable and he'll bring he'll sell mm. more tickets uh, than than Peter Mullen will. But he really he's playing a supporting part, and I'm sure he and he, he seems yeah. like a smart guy, uh, Gerald Butler. So I'm sure he realised that when he when he when he agreed to do it. I, I wouldn't be I couldn't find any interviews with him about this film, but I'm sure he probably wanted to work with Peter Mullen, and that's one of the reasons they did it. You know. 
you can almost tell from the performance he delivers in this film that he's enjoying himself and he's happy to be on screen with Mullen because when he is on screen and, and and that's the thing is it is that a case of Gerard Butler is delivers a great performance or is it that he is bouncing off of Mullen Mullen and that's making draws it out of him deliver a, maybe yeah it could be it could well be because a lot of the times they're on screen together like I say I have genuinely. Spoiler alert, like, who wins the movie? I'm kind of torn between Mullen and Butler mm. because, and it's maybe just out of sympathy for Butler because it's, it, he's fucking great yes, in this film. Yeah. Like, he's so good. And it's such a shame that he is, and I, I'd kind of slightly disagree with you in terms of A-list, B-list. I think he's firmly a B-list. Yeah. If you look at the, the shite he's churning out at the moment, yeah. he is a, a B-list, um, kind of B-movie actor at the moment, mm. making all these kind of subpar action films that are just shite but then he's got his you know it's kind of bread and butter yeah. and that's what he, he knows to do he's like a, a shitty Scottish bearded Jason Statham <laughs> in a way do you know what yeah. I mean like where Statham is still Statham is still A-list and you know he's still in the, the Fast and the Furious mm. films he's still the make it, Statham will you know, Statham will make a B-list film, but it's kind of they've almost on a similar kind of trajectory. But I would say Butler is is slightly. I think Butler. Less I think than, Butler's uh, a far better actor than Statham. Like, if they, as when it comes to acting, I think he's a far better actor than Statham. I, I don't think Statham's put in a better oh, performance than when he was in Lockstock. Oh yeah, sorry, Snatch. I think is probably Statham's best performance as an actor. Everything else, be yeah. like, they, you know, what's the one, the sort of franchise he was in, The Courier, not The Courier, uh, the Transporter. You know what I mean? And then you know he plays, he's in his Shaw and Hobbs and Shaw and stuff, and he's in The Meg, and he's he done a few films with Jet Li and everything. Essentially, just playing a fucking hard bastard that can do like that can do like fucking amazing martial arts whereas Gerald Butler is is a good actor he's demonstrated it in this and I think as well I couldn't imagine David uh, Jason Stratham agreeing to do like a sort of Richie-esque sort of London gangster movie or or even like some sort of oldie Victorian thing where he's got to wear like a Victorian wardrobe and, and be like an interesting character in a sort of psychological Victorian mystery or something like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't see him doing that somehow. But I could see... You can't see Statham doing a Guy Ritchie gangster movie. Not now. Not say. now, you know. Okay. Yeah, they, I couldn't see him... Was he not it, Was he not in the most recent Guy Ritchie movie? Which one? Well, the one no, not the most recent one. He's, he's, he, he, <laughs> yeah, but he's in one that's set in America, but it doesn't feel like a Guy Ritchie movie. He's like a... He does like bank heists and stuff. I can't remember what it's called. The something, okay. the, the something of man or something. It wasn't very good. I watched it. I watched it a couple of years ago. Yeah, but I couldn't see him. You like when uh, Guy Ritchie made the Sherlock Holmes film. I couldn't see Stratham playing like Watson to Robert Downey Jr.'s Holmes or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm. The way that Jude Law did, because he's he's sort he's but he's just sort of. And then, don't get me wrong, I fucking really like Jason Stratham. That's I do like him, and I like watching these films, even though a lot of them are fucking nonsense. But I like it. I like watching them batter the absolute shit out of somebody <laughs> in a film. But uh, I just think I, I I couldn't see him making the choice that Gerald Butler made to start to appear in this film at that at this point in his career. You know. Okay, so I think we've we've spoken about Gerald Butler quite a fair bit. So in terms of the actual film, so it's about these three lighthouse keepers that are looking after this lighthouse on this island and there's a a big storm and they find a dead body the next day effectively with this chest but it turns out it's not a dead body it's the guy ends up attacking one of them 
McDonald. And they find this chest and fuck me, it's got gold in it and but then these other guys come looking for the gold and this big rammy ensues on the island and yeah so in terms of story i i thought it was like it took a while to get going Mm. which i actually really liked because it helps you get to know the characters Mm. because otherwise you're just like okay it's gerard butler it's peter mullen and who's this guy some young kid because i wasn't aware of of connor swindles Mm. before but in terms of the i really liked the way they they had the slow build up because you got to know okay mullen is this grumpy ish kind of guy but he's been a lighthouse keeper for 25 years he's got some sort of dark secret in terms of something to do with his wife and kids he gets on with people but he's a grumpy bastard because even the way he's speaking to kenny played by gary lewis you kind of get the feeling they're old friends but he's still a grumpy bastard when they're on the boat. Kenny's trying to have a bit of banter with him, and even then he's like, just how how much further? Come on. Yeah, come on. You get everything you need, Paul. Yeah, six weeks. I'll yeah. just drive a bloody boat, man. And you have uh obviously James, played by Gerard Butler, who's a family man, obviously just doing this for the money. Mm. He seems quite lighthearted. And then young Donald, who played by Connor Swindles, who it, I guess this is his first trip because he's sick on the boat on the way over. Yeah. So I guess it's um, it's the, the first time he's doing it and they're having to kind of show him the ropes. Yeah. And you kind of get the, the impression when they get there, he... You know, first thing he does, feet on the table, lights a fire. Yeah. And whereas, you know, James is sweeping the floor, Thomas is tending stuff, marking the whiskey bottle with a <laughs> yes. little pencil yeah. to see how much anyone's scoofing, although it's him that's scoofing mm. most of it. And yeah, you get the impression it's his it's it's his first time coming here. Yeah, for sure. Um I'd seen Connor Spindles in uh, there was a show on the BBC last year about the formation of the SAS called uh, Rogue Heroes, and he plays um, real-life uh, character David Sterling, uh, who is credited with forming the SES uh, in the Second World War in North Africa. Hmm. But in, the, in that film, in that TV show, he seems like a really tall, sort of broad-shouldered kind of guy. But I don't know hmm. if it's just because, obviously, he's, he's four or five years younger in this. He's... he's in a lot, he's in shots a lot with Gerald Butler, who's a big fella. But you know, yeah. he seems sort of slight, and and he seems really young mm. as well. I mean, he, I did, I did throw up my mouth a little bit when I saw that he was born in 1996, which was the year I left school. But um, um, he, um, he's not, and he's not Scottish, crucially, he's English. Um, yeah, but he does a pretty good Scottish accent, but also holds his own, really. You know, like I, I won't, I won't mm. go on with Butler, but we've said already that he. Is very good in this. And then you've got this sort of performance that we've come to expect from Peter Mullen, this sort of brooding, mm. haunted, unpredictable, sort of older statesman but kind of performance, you know. Whereas, because the thing about Mullen is they obviously we find out that his wife has had given birth to twins, the twins hadn't survived. She seems to have passed away, whether it's a result of the twins or whether it's a result of depression or, or whether she, she might have killed herself, is sort of hinted at as well when the Norwegian mm. guy asks. Uh, Thomas, if he could ask if how his wife died, and Tom, and obviously, like suicide would have been back then a sort of shameful thing to admit to suicide in your family. But you know that you, it doesn't have to be explained. Like you know, from the minute we meet Thomas when they're setting off, um, and they're getting together to get in the boat, you already know that there's something there. 
with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was watching, you know, the actor David Ogg, who plays Trevor in Grand Theft Auto Five. Yes. So he yes. was being interviewed on a podcast, and he was talking about how Peter Mullen is uh, his favourite actor. And he um, mm. he describes the opening scene in Tyrannosaur, which is a hard scene to watch, especially for you and I, because we are big dog fans. But, you know, mm-hmm. we see Mullen's character in the pub and he's fucking slamming beers. And I, th- I, think he gets, I think he gets told that he's got to leave because he's too pissed. So he comes out in a bad mood. The dog's whining. So he boots the dog and he goes, kicks the dog too hard and the dog the dog passes away and so he he kind of realizes what he's done he picks the dog up and he the shot is just him sort of walking up the street and what david Ogg says he says somehow you feel sorry for peter mullen for his character mm-hmm. you don't you don't find you, yeah. you're you're sorry that the the, the the poor wee dog's passed away but you still have sympathy for him because the performance that he gives you know he's immediately in the first few minutes of Tyrannosaur, much like this film, you know that he is a troubled guy. You know, we find out later on in Tyrannosaur, the character's a little similar in that he had lost his wife as well, I think, if I remember right, um, much like Thomas in The Vanishing. But you feel sorry for him, even though he's just done mm. this horrible thing to this poor dog. You know, you're like, well, he's so fucked up. You know, like there's something... He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a troubled guy. And there's, there's not many actors who in the midst of a performance could kick a dog to death and still have your sympathy yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean especially in the very in the first moments of the film he's like he's, he's hardly said a word in character and he's done this horrendous thing and he's a bit like this and this is he doesn't say a great deal in those first scenes when they're leaving but we see a lot of his point of view you know what I mean he looks over to James saying goodbye to his kids he looks over to mm-hmm. Donald he has says a word or two to a couple other guys speaks to uh, Kenny the the the, the captain of the boat that's going to take them out um, but he doesn't have to do a lot, that's the thing with Mullen, do you know what I mean, he's, he doesn't need to do very much to, or say much he just sort of really embodies the characters that he's playing Yeah, yeah. as you say, as soon as you see him on, on screen for the first time, you kind of know like, okay, this is a hardened guy mm. who's who's been through a lot, and you know the, the first initial interactions that he has, you know, when they get there, just little facial expressions he gives to to Donald mm. when Donald sitting with his feet up on the table smoking. Yeah. You know, he's like, and the marking of the bottle and things. And then he's, you know, he's obviously the one in charge. He's been there, but it says twenty five years. He's mm. been in the a lighthouse keeper. And again, the scene where they find the the dead. Bought the body at the at the bottom of the ravine, and they're saying they're going to set Donald down. And he's like, "Well, why me?" And he says, "Well, because one, you're the lightest, and two, James is more important than you." <laughs> and it's you know, it's so matter of fact in terms of the, the the delivery. But the I think the the scene where it really holds its own is when the two guys, and I, I, it's never established if they're like Norwegian, Icelandic. When when the other two guys come on to the the island yeah. looking for their friend mm. or the, or the missing rowing boat with the with effectively the gold, um, the tension in that scene, yeah, when they're speaking to Mullen, and you're kind of thinking, right, did he do the right thing in terms of basically admitting that they'd seen it? I mean, still lying. But that, yeah. yeah, we found the body, we found the box, we've sent it back to the mainland. Yeah. Or should he have just said, nah, never saw anything. Sorry, not a thing. It was stormy, like, nah. Yeah. Nothing's come in. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Like, did, he, did he fuck up there, effectively? I think so. But 
that that tension in that scene is just incredible and it goes you know to the the remarkability of mullen but also the other actor that's um that's in the scene mm. and i don't know uh, if it's Soren Malling, yeah, I, I think, think that sounds right. Yeah, it's um, Locke. Yeah. yeah, um, the the two of them just the, just the tension and intensity in that scene mm. is just remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you would, I suppose, and again, it's a normal guy that you say who's been doing working in the same place for twenty five years, they right? the same routine for twenty five years, and he is trying to be evasive. He's probably never had to tell such an important lie before. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's got to think in his feet. He's got to try and convince these guys. He's, he wants to be believable, but he also wants those guys to move on as quickly as possible, not have the other guys, the other two lighthouse keepers come down and join the conversation. And again, you know, Mullen, you know, you're right. He, the character has essentially fucked it in his, in his conversation with the two, the two Icelandic Scandinavian guys, but you you buy it completely because if he had been, you know, like in in, in less delicate hands, this could have been a, you know, we're expected to believe that this normal guy can suddenly turn into this master of deception in order to keep this gold yeah. that they've come across, you know. Um, but with 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 Mother Nick, he understands that. Well, this guy is—he's never found a fucking chest of gold before. He's an honest working man that's been keeping a lighthouse for all these years. You know how how is he gonna how is he gonna act in a situation like this when he's put in the spot by people who, if they've got this box of gold, it's never it's never really explained where the gold has come from, how these guys had it in the first place. But it's sort of suggested that they're less than savoury characters and then of mm. course the way they behave later on um, when they attack the lighthouse keepers it kind of confirms it but in that scene that you're describing with Mullen you know they, we don't really know an awful lot about these guys we assume that they're probably criminal to some extent but you, mm. you're sort of you're making that assumption with Thomas because of because of how fucking amazing Mullen is <laughs> do you know what I mean he, yeah. you're with him you're sort of you're, you're seeing it through his eyes um, and it's completely completely believable and it's it's thomas that comes up with the the, the plan really because um donald and, and kenny are, um well they open the chest don't they not kenny sorry uh, james. donald donald and james i mean well thomas has opened the chest mm. beforehand and seen what's in it and then comes through and they've opened the chest and they're talking about where do you want to go first paris or new york yeah. they're spending all the money and Thomas effectively, you know, has to go outside, calm down, comes back in, and then he lays out this whole plan of we will do this six weeks on, six weeks off yeah. for a year. Yeah. And then, you know, and he's very and it's almost like a it's almost like Goodfellas mm. when they do the heist and, you know, Robert you know, Jimmy is is when the guy comes in with the wife with the fur coat. Bring it back. Cadillac, Bring it back. Like, what the fuck are you Bring doing? Bring it back. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's, you know, it's exactly the way he's describing in terms of you can't go spending that money because people will know. Mm. So you have to just sit on it for a year and then we disappear. Yeah. And he has got this plan kind of laid down of what they're going to do. So very intelligent guy in terms of thinking ahead and knowing what's going to happen because they're going to know something's up if they just disappear all of a sudden. And he's got this sorted until these guys show up. Yeah. And then he kind of fucks it by to say, saying that they, yeah. they had it. We do exactly as I say. We get rid of the body. We wait it down, take it to the end of the jetty and we toss it out of the sea. When Kenny gets back, we each take a share of the gold and we hide it in our cases. 
And when we get back? Nothing. Nothing. We go home, we carry home. Six weeks later, we come back. We finish with shift. Six weeks after that, the same again. Nothing for at least a year. I'll find the buy in Edinburgh somebody we can trust. And you'll turn the gold into cash. Agreed. Now we don't talk about this. And you tell no one, and I mean absolutely no one. And you do exactly as I say. One more spoken, hinted or suggested about this, and we are dead. His, his plan seems to be to tell as few lies as possible all the way through. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they were here. So the lie is that the body and the bolt and the chest have been taken back to the mainland, and then later on, after all the carnage, and you know when James accidentally kills the wee boy and stuff, and again he's like, you know, we we tell the truth. They were here, but we they came to ask for navigational charts. We gave them the charts. They went away again. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm. how can we get through this without spinning too outlandish a tale? You know, we just we don't want to tell too many yeah. lies, or else we're going to get caught out, whatever. And again, it it feels quite real. You know, like you know, if you if you if you came across something like that, and you just if you came across like a box full of money, and you and you wanted to keep it, you know, how would you? But obviously. You were you knew that you weren't allowed to keep it. How would you how would you sort of try and style it out? You know, you don't want people to know. Unfortunately, uh, maybe if Colleen, um, the grand from Grand Theft Auto had watched this movie, she might not have been uh caught quite as soon, you know. She'd sat in her one and a half million for a few years. Um but um but again, you know, it's like, well what would you do if you in you in, in that situation? And the thing is, like everything that they do and everything that Thomas well, not everything they do, but everything that Thomas says they should do, it feels kinda like the right thing to do. You know, like when he was talking about what you just mm. described and he's talking about, you know, we'll lie low for a year, I, I could feel myself going, Yeah. <laughs> it's smart. It's, it's fucking it's smart. Great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, let the dust let the dust settle on this, you know, and then blah blah blah. And then he, you know he knows that he, he thought he thinks he knows a guy in Edinburgh that can turn the gold into cash and all this kind of thing. And you know, I'm like, yep, my my faith would well and truly be with Thomas at that stage. You know, um, had I been one of the other lighthouse keepers, they they made a big thing. There was a a, a scene about the the mercury, the the quicksilver. Yeah leaking out of the instruments mm. and they, they managed to put that back in. And then there was another scene like 10 minutes later when you saw James sitting upstairs yeah. with a little pool of mercury beside him. And I thought, okay, is this is that going to drive them all mental and there's going to be some sort of yeah Lord of the Flies yeah. type issue going on here? But they never really come back to that because it, like Donald and James do go a bit mental. I mean, James more so, but it's understandable for the reasons they do because Donald kills the first guy mm. with the rock, yeah. which is going to emotionally scar you. And, and Thomas and James are very sympathetic towards him and, and say, you know, there's nothing else you could have done. Yeah. Like, And effectively, it was him or him. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it was one of them going to die. And I think I would be in the same boat. I'd kind of be a little bit emotionally scarred. But, you know, you would come to terms with, well, it was either him or me. I was, he was drowning me. I had to do mm. it. But then when he pops the other guy's eyes out <laughs> with the with the rope, you know, you're like, okay, Donald's fucked up now because he's just killed 
two people. Yeah. Like it's that's gonna really fuck you up. But the thing that fucks James up, you know, he seems fine with having killed that other guy. But when he kills the boy. the young boy, yeah. that that sends him into emotional turmoil. Now, do you think there was anything to do with the mercury in that? Did that add to it, or is you know because otherwise, what is the point of having that that kind of mercury subplot part? in the film. I think we're expected to acknowledge that that is part of it. You know what I mean? Like in in Mm. that Mark Kermode interview, sorry, review as well, he does, he talks a lot about the about the Mercury because it is set up in that scene when they've got the protective clothing on and stuff and James says, you know, there's been many a, many a lighthouse keeper that's been driven mad by the Quicksilver. Yeah. So then when we see him later on and then, so I sort of took it to be, well, he, you know, he's killed this, this young boy who reminds him of his own son. So he's that, maybe the, the exposure to the Mercury has a, sort of a, exacerbated how, how he reacted to it but then all three of them you know but in the, the sort of they in the second half of the second act and the third act arguably thomas isn't behaving the way that we would have expected him to behave when we first meet him at the beginning of the film you know he's he's mm. gone from this veteran lighthouse keeper to somebody who's plotting to keep this gold and deal with these these uh, criminals effectively that want to get their gold back and stuff you know what I mean? And, the, and even when the wee boy's killed, he's very much, like, it was dark, you couldn't see what you were doing. You know, he's sort of playing it down where, you know, the fact of the matter is this young kid has died, you know, through misadventure, by mistake, or whatever else. And, you know, it's like, well, would the, is that the way that the Thomas that we met in the first, in the beginning of the film would have behaved? Not so sure. Mm. So is it, you know, is has this a bit of exposure to the Mercury? You know, and the thing is, the way that um, Donald um, attacks the guy who has stabbed Thomas in the leg, you know, like, you're in a kitchen, the first thing he picks up is a bit of rope and ties it around his head. <laughs> and I know, I, yeah. I, I know they talk about that earlier on in the film, and then Thomas is talking about how pirates used to get information out of people but you know even a kitchen you sure the first thing you'd have picked up would have been a bloody kitchen knife or something and plunged them with it you wouldn't have like gone to the yeah. trouble of tying it around his head whilst um thomas pulls the guy's arms and stuff bear in mind that thomas has been stabbed maybe in the artery in his leg <laughs> do you know what i mean mm. he just sort of pulls the knife out i remember saying to macy last night i don't know if we could pull that knife out <laughs> you know yeah, I thought that too, exactly, <laughs> yeah. when he pulled it out. I was like, oh, is that the best idea? Yeah, I might have left that in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that is an exciting moment in the film, uh, when when the three like, when our three heroes effectively overcome these bastards and stuff. But I, I did think, I'm not sure, when, when Donald tied the rope around his head, I'm not sure that that would have been my go-to <laughs> in the kitchen um, to sort of fend these guys off. It provided a nice callback, though, to the, the scene with the crabs in terms of the... Well, you know, this is the, it. This is it. Thomas had, had explained it all very yeah. well. So, um, and I thought it gave a, a good thing. So, I mean, this whole film takes place over what five days? Do we think? Yeah, like, something like that. On that island, yeah. because it's basically the first night is the the storm, mm-hmm. and then it's you know the next day they find the body. Probably the day after the guys come yeah. on that night is the big fight, and then over the next two days, because I guess um, James is hiding in the chapel for a day or so. Yeah, before he comes out. So yeah, like maybe five days in total. This all takes. Place. Have you ever seen a chapel that's designed for one person at a time? <laughs> no, <laughs> neither. No. I haven't. But on a small island, I guess yeah. maybe it um, it makes sense to have that. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, because 
And then the other thing is, the thing that sort of gives them away, and I had to sort of figure it out with Macy, but it's the broken radio we came to the, we came to the conclusion yeah. that's what gives them away, because they say that they radioed it in, Thomas tells them their radio call sign, and that's how the, mm-hmm. that's how the baddies, if you like, realise that they're lying, because they try to radio, they radio them, and they can't hear them, so they know the radio is broken, but they can hear them, mm-hmm. and that's how they work out that Thomas has lied to them, that, that the, the box must still be in the island somewhere and stuff, um, yeah. but I, I, I didn't think it, I don't know, maybe, well, I guess I mean, I, I worked it out, so I suppose it was explained quite well, but... <laughs> You know, but I was about like I thought that was I, I thought that was quite clear. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't drunk when I watched this, crucially. Um I'd i only had like a beer um at that point. So uh I don't know. I just I felt I felt in the moment that I had to really think about about it, you know. So there's a lot of supernatural theories as to what actually happened on the island. Mm. And people think maybe something but the the main theory is that and they've kind of mixed up the characters, I think, here in terms of Donald and James. So it was the character Donald, um, well, not the character, the actual Donald. Yeah. He was apparently a big drinker and a bit of a head case. Uh-huh. And they, I think him and James's character got kind of a bit amalgamated yeah. in this film. So they think that Donald might have got pissed and then killed the other two and then ended up killing himself. Or the other theory is that just this giant wave just came up and swept them all off to sea because there was a big storm mm. and a lot of the island was ravaged and battered so I think the the other theory is that they just literally all got swept off to sea Well that seems like the most realistic theory because apparently Donald to your point was, you know, he wasn't like a new sort of greenhorn he was quite, he was a veteran lighthouse keeper yeah. um, and yeah. what they, apparently when they when the relief came and they found that there was one set of oil skins. So one of the mm. theories, which sounds quite plausible, is that Donald, in his capacity as a veteran uh, lighthouse keeper, was in the lighthouse tending the light while the other two were dealing with something on the actual island itself. He saw the waves coming and saw the and recognised them as being like a big, big waves and damaging waves and just ran out to warn the other guys who were preoccupied in what they were doing. So he hadn't put his oil skins on because of the emergency mm. and the waves have, have taken them both off, which sounds reasonable. It's you know it's it sounds as reasonable as any theory. I mean there's other ones about yeah. sea serpents and and all sorts. And I think you know people just love a, a good mystery. You know what I mean? They they, they yeah. love it. It's like, it's like the sort of Marie Celeste. You know it's sort of similar kind of thing. You know the the they, they they found that the kitchen was had been cleaned up and there was dishes drying on the rack, but the beds weren't made and mm. blah, blah blah. And I thought well you know would three guys would they make their beds every day back and you know they. They've got a lot of work to do. They're just they're, they're probably knackered at the end of the day. They're sleeping in shifts. They just fall into bed. Are they really going to go to the trouble of making their beds every day when they've got so many jobs to do? And and their guys, you know, like back in those days, probably not quite as domesticated as 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 like twenty first century metrosexuals are. <laughs> I d- there's a scene where they have to they have a little sing song where yeah Thomas plays the violin and um. James gives a, a a song, so we get to see uh, Gerard Butler. So his second appearance on the Culture Swally and his second song. Yeah, but I would still say We Love Cowed and Beef yeah. is my favourite. There's a shot. Out of the there's a shopping centre underneath. I mean, honestly, that will never not be funny. I can't imagine a time when that won't make me laugh. <laughs> Him like doing a cappello cow and beef song in the radio studio. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> I love the life of the Pacific community. 
Magic Town Hall And I'm wild about the shopping mall You can park underneath That's the wonder of God and I thought that, I mean, overall, this film, like, it's, I love a film where it's something like claustrophobic. Yeah. And there's, you know, trapped and tension. It's and small and cast that's what I think and... what really, yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing that appeals to me. The, the, the kind of tension, stripped back. You don't need to show a huge amount of set pieces or special effects. I mean, I, I thought the special effects in terms of the waves mm. coming up and, and stuff were great. And it, and it, it made it such more an engaging film that it was just so stripped back, so this claustrophobic element um, of of just kind of they're trapped. You know, you you don't know what's going to happen. There's nothing they can do. And when they know like the guys are on the island, like oh fuck, one of them's here. Yeah. And you know they run off, and you're like shit, what's going to happen mm. here? It's um it's wonderful because there's there's nowhere to run to. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost a play. You know, like without all the amazing establishing shots of Elon Moore and the lighthouse itself and like to your point, this like sort of angry sea sort of banging about around it. You 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 could imagine this on the stage as a play almost, you know? Mm. Like a, a, essentially a three-hander. You know, three guys sort of it's sort of claustrophobic, you know, they're yeah. you know, they're sharing a sort of dormitory, they're cooking for each other they're trying to find an entertainment you know for the off times you know that was a sing song a dram um or whatever else you know before all this intrigue and everything begins you know i think i think the first act is maybe the most powerful of the three because yeah you know i mean i and i get it like they've sort of made they're trying to make a compelling psychological sort of drama out of you know a sort of possible however improbable kind of theory of what happened to these real life characters but to your point like the the first sort of 30 minutes when we see them leaving james saying goodbye to his family you know donald all he's got is this little bag because that's all he's got because mm-hmm. we find out that he's later on that he's a he's a bastard um Mm. You know, and everything that that meant back at the turn of the 20th century, you know, he's sort of shunned by the community and everything, you know, for no fault of his own. They can't help how he was born, um, but he's got to sort of try and live with it. And then, you know, then then Thomas, this kind of brooding veteran lighthouse keeper that we realise later on is dealing with all this trauma that having lost his wife and his, and, his, and his twins. Yeah, really, really powerful. And you can imagine that being played on the stage, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe not so much the, the the later parts of the film, but certainly the early parts. Um, I I wasn't shocked, but as we we spoke about earlier, when you see James giving that kind of look sideways look as Thomas is going into the pantry, mm. um, when he gives that look to Duncan, locks Thomas in the pantry, and then once Thomas breaks out, he's killed Duncan. Mm. You know, you were shocked because you thought they were yeah. kind of of good buddies, but obviously things had, had taken a, a bit of a turn. And then Thomas and James effectively escape escape with all the gold, but then James can't can't live with it. Take what he's done. Yeah. And d- did you think you know he he puts himself over the side of the boat and tries to drown himself? When he comes back up, I genuinely thought he was going to drag Thomas overboard with yeah, him. Yeah, too. When yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I definitely thought that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's the way it's implied. But mm. no, Thomas just holds him under the water, kills him, and you know, effectively 
Thomas gets to fuck off with all the gold and none of the regret. I mean, the only person he's really killed was James, who wanted to kill himself anyway. Yeah. Thomas didn't kill anyone else. Duncan killed two of the guys. James killed the other one. Yeah. Do you know, Thomas has kind of assisted suicide is probably the best he's going to suffer from. Well, yeah, but then again, you know, they were mulling. You know, it, to your point, it's, it's it's quite an ambiguous ending. But you know, does he does he sail off and be, sort of disappear with the gold and make the best of it? But you know, because and again, like with a different actor, you might you might you could be forgiven for thinking that. But with Mullen, although the film ends with him sort of standing on the deck of the boat, you know, like the guilt of everything that he has gone through is there mm. on his it sort of sits on his shoulders when we see him in that shot on the deck of the boat. You know, he's 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 you know, this young boy has lost his life. These criminals, however deserved they are not, have died. James, who he knows the best, he's help die because James can't live with it and you know he's he's not like a young guy he's not supposed to be a young guy in this he's supposed to be a, like a sort of veteran older fella with like a 25 year career behind him and just like a normal guy that work that is a, that happens to be a lighthouse oh. keeper and it's you know when you see him stood there I, you know I'm sort of thinking well I don't think it's going to end well for Thomas where you know whether he throws himself over the side after the credits have rolled or whether later on he drinks himself to death or something but this, again with Mullen all those eventualities are possibilities you know do you know what I mean? Just the the way that he stood on the deck of the boat and his body language and the way he's looking off camera and stuff like that. You just think, well, who knows what's going to happen to this guy? But you do get the feeling that it's not going to end well for him, you know? I could see him maybe getting somewhere, selling the gold, uh, sending half the money to James's family and then drinking himself to death. Yeah, probably. Yeah, maybe, yeah, for sure. Because he's a haunted individual and a lot going on, but yeah, I think that would. I think he's a he's a good, honest person as well. Mm. So I think he would definitely give them their share of the money, if you know what I mean. Well, he's he's traumatized before any of this happened on the island. He's yeah. traumatized by the loss yeah. of his wife and the loss of his twins. You know, and he's 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 dealing with that to the point where even when people are trying to be sympathetic towards them and show support that like you can't hear it. You know, like when Kenny, uh, Gary Lewis's uh, character, tries to give him some platitudes and he's like, just just drive the fucking boat, Kenny. You know, um, he's just, he's, he can't accept sympathy. So he's not, he's not dealing with, he's not, he's clearly not been able to deal with the loss that he's experienced. Mm. And then he's immediately, he's almost immediately thrown into this scenario with the other two guys and the golds and the Scandinavian guys and murder and fucking all this stuff. Um, you know, and again, I don't, I, I can't think of many actors that could make you believe all of those, that they were going through no. all those things. You know what I mean? When we see that after the first night, effectively, after the storm, and he's, he's had a drink yeah. and... Donald gets up and looks out the window and uh, Thomas is literally howling to the moon yeah. and screaming and James comes in and hugs him and calms him down. Yeah. So uh, exactly as you say, you know, he's a really troubled individual mm-hmm. and which makes it all the more shocking, you know, the the way Tim and James kind of, not turn, but uh, yeah. the way things work out. Yeah, for sure. So I've devised the game. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to give you two famous Scottish people um, and I'm going to ask you to imagine them as lighthouse keepers and I want you to tell me if you think the couple that the, the couples will be lighthouse family or shite house family 
Okay. <laughs> like, in terms of how they would get on together? How they would... How, how they would operate a lighthouse? How they would get on in isolation together for six weeks okay. at a time. Okay. Okay, so the, my first uh, my, my first pairing is uh, Aberdeen legendary footballer, raconteur, and amazing moustache cultivator, Willie Miller. And... Uh, <laughs> Pete Waterman's nemesis, uh, Michelle McManus. Okay, so William Miller, I've met a couple of times. He's he's a nice guy. He I've, he's always been nice when I've met him. Um, he likes a vodka and cranberry. He's obviously an Aberdeen legend. Um, Michelle McManus obviously had a number one hit. Um, Likes cheese. A larger lady, but she seems quite fun. Um, Willie Miller's quite fun as well I bet he'd be up for it I'm going to go Lighthouse family Lighthouse, okay You think uh, you don't think Michelle would get on Willie's nerves a bit after a while? Yeah, she'll get in his tits But then he'll But he's a professional guy He's just he's, dealing with all walks of life He's a professional yeah. He's a broadcaster He's used to it She's a broadcaster as well They're used to it I'm going Lighthouse family Okay Alright, next one then. So the next one is actually a trio. So I'm sort of subverting my own rules. So we've got um, uh, late 70s and early 80s, not just Scottish, but the UK entertainment legends, the Crankies, Jeanette and Ian Tuch, mm-hmm. and uh, Partick Thistle and Scotland uh, legendary goalkeeper, Alan Ruff. I think that's going to shake out. Well, the Crankies are well known for their swinging and, and for light entertainment. Alan Ruff... I don't think he's probably seen some action for a while. So I think he would be up for a little bit of Jeanette in her yeah. school uniform. I'm going Lighthouse family. You think so? Like Ian sitting in the corner, iPhone out, smoking a ciggy, filming yeah. while Alan and Jeanette yeah. get down to it. Lighthouse family, okay. That's getting uploaded to OnlyFans <laughs> later on. The Cranky's yeah. OnlyFans, yeah. can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if that was what they had on there? Oh my God. <laughs> 15 quid a month to watch the Crankies fucking, with a bowl of car keys. <laughs> Do you know something? I, I would probably pay that out of interest. Like, not out of, yeah, not for any Erotic reasons. sexual gratification, yeah. just out of out just, of entertainment and banter. Just, just to find out if it's true or not, really. It's good to know. Does this actually exist? Um, all right, number three then. Um so sometimes known as Big Tam, but the most the rest of the world know him as Sean Connery. Um and uh Journey Woman newsreader Jackie Bird. Oh shite house family. <laughs> oh no. Big Tam's gonna slap her about no. a bit. <laughs> Big Tam would be walking about there in his pants. Um he'd be slapping her about if dinner wasn't on the table. He'd be pinging golf balls off the top of the lighthouse. <laughs> Jackie'd be saying, you know, there's no need for that. You know, you're going to help me with you know, this. She'd mercury. be, nip- she'd, she'd be, she'd be nipping his heat. The mercury would get to them as a shite house family, yeah. just waiting to happen. Okay, um, okay, right. Number four then. Uh, Swally legend and uh, wearer of fisherman jumpers, James Cosmo and um, Scottish Asian little pocket rocket. Marley Sue. Oh no, that's a that's a lighthouse family waiting to happen. In fact, I'd love to see a sitcom with that. That's that's wonderful. Um, Cosmo, I cannot believe getting upset with anyone no. ever. Um, he's just such a cuddly, lovely guy. Endless, Marley Sue endless is so patience, lovely as well. Right? Endless patience. Yeah, no, no, that is a lighthouse family waiting to happen. That's just like a a wonderful, um, beautiful kind of uh, coming together. No, definitely lighthouse family. I can see, I, yeah. I can see Marley keen. 
to learn the ropes, get involved, just, you know, she wants to do some of the more labour-intensive work. James, sort of classic gentleman. No, 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 you just, you just sit there, Marley, I'll, I'll yeah. you know, he, he's, he's out there in the storm with oil skins on, like, tying notes, uh, knots and cranes. He's polishing the fucking lamp up, up there. And, uh, yeah, and Marley's just like, feels a bit bad, you know, I feel like I should be doing more. Yeah, you know? she wants she wants to help, but he won't let her because he's too much of a yeah, gentleman. He's a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. Okay, last one, yeah. number five. Um, John Barrowman, pretend sort of Scottish potential, uh, you know, sort of card marks a little bit, and uh, <laughs> Kevin Guthrie. <laughs> so, shall we go on to the Swally Awards, Greg? Uh, what have we got on uh, anything else on uh, the vanishing? No, I don't think so. I, mean, I would say that it's, you know, um, we've obviously ruined it um, for anybody who's not seen it. But <laughs> watch The Vanishing um, if you haven't already. Uh, great movie. Uh, great performances from uh, Swindells, Butler and Mullen. Okay, so our Swally Awards then. So the first one that we would usually do would be the Bobby the Barman Award for the best pub. But there's no pub in this one. There's zero pub. No. Yeah. It's just the drinks cabinet, drinks, which yeah. doesn't qualify. But There's, there's no beers in there. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't think I could be away for six no. weeks and only have drams. I need a few cans. Do you know what I mean? For like my time off. Okay. Um, I need a few yeah. cans. Um Okay, right, number two then, the James Cosmo Award for being in Everything Scottish. So who did you go for here? We often debate this whenever they come up, because mm. it's, it's one of the two, isn't it? It's Peter Mullen or Gary Lewis. And I would, I'm going to go with Mullen because with his appearance in this, this puts Mullen tied at the top of the swally tally with Alex Norton. Wow. <laughs> I mean... And I thought I thought Norton's lead was unassailable. Yeah. But with this, they are tied at the top with thirteen appearances each. I mean, I I went for Gary Lewis because I think in a lot of ways Lewis has become the kind of new Cosmo. You know, like Cosmo yeah. through the through the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, whenever there was anything Scottish, and it didn't have to be a Scottish production. You know, like famously he turns up in Highlander, turns up in Braveheart, he's even he's even in the Outlaw King. Um, the Chris Pine, Robert the Bruce movie on Netflix, which we may or may not do in the Swally in, the, in a few months' time. I think Lewis seems... And, and, I, and I made a note, because I know that Peter Mullen and Gary Lewis are pals. You know, they're good mates. Um, and I thought to yeah. myself, you know, has Mullen, you know, has Mullen done a good turn for his pal here? Got him a wee gig? Yeah, he has. A days work? 100% yeah, he, he has. has. 100% he has. He's got him just a little roll, two days' work, three days' work max, but he's got him this little roll. 100% he's done of a solid and you can tell they're mates yeah. you know yeah. just the the chemistry but yeah 100% he's done him a solid okay there you know what give it to Gary and see, and I'm happy that's that. why I want to be pals with Peter Mullen <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> who who doesn't want to be pals with Peter Mullen I bet he's great to be pals with yeah I bet he is I bet he's a good guy I bet he's a really I bet, I bet when you talk I bet when you're having a pint and you're talking to him he's fully engaged you know what I mean he's interested he's asking yeah. about yourself he, he, he yeah. wants to know how you're getting on not seen you for ages he wants to know you're doing yeah um, yeah. Right, number three, then the Jake McQuillan Yurtizu Award. Few options here. There's quite a lot of options. Um, I went with Donald using the rope on the guy like a crab, was my <laughs> kind of because it just seemed like the end of the fight yeah. that ended it. Yurtizu, you cunt, bang. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of options. My first choice was Donald smashing the guy with a rock but there's lots mm. i mean what, what did you go well for? i went with donald smashing the guy with a rock just because the the actor who 
please, uh, Donald's assailant um, in that first in that first scene when they come across the the broken lifeboat and what they assume to be a dead body. When when Donald manages to get his hand in the rock, although I did notice that Donald's hand went past a lot of rocks, which they've done just as well. It's the one that he's <laughs> it's the one that his hands alighted on eventually. Um, when when he tans him with it, the guy looks. But he always clearly wasn't expecting it, stunned and, yeah. and, and falls down dead. So I, I went with that one. Um, but we could have had um, when James comes and you know the the the, the big fella thinks that he's he's done James in after he's but James comes mm. back with a bit of wood and tans him and then oh yeah chokes him that to was death. wonderful yeah <laughs> you know? that was that was in my uh, yeah in my top three as well yeah. that was a belter definitely yeah um, so I mean I don't think you'd want to see it to be honest but. Crucially, no Ewan McGregor awards for nudity in this because there's no nudity. Is there? Is there? Is there? There's no. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. No, there's not. No. See that? No. No. Um, so we'll 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 skip quickly on then to the uh, Francis Begbie Award for gratuitous swearing. So for this one, I went with uh, Donald uh, telling Thomas to fuck off, you old cunt, which was a bit, a bit unexpected when the language had been fairly uh, sort of mosaic up until that point, you know. But sorry, prosaic, yeah. not mosaic. <laughs> I would agree with you. Yeah, no, that was a good one. I went with when they're about to winch Donald down to get the dead body, and I think uh, Thomas says to him, "You're good." And Donald says, well, I guess I'm going to have to fucking have to be. Yeah. <laughs> All good? Well, I guess it's going to fucking have to be. Watch your language. Well, make sure you hold that tight. Hey, huh? hey, I got you. Don't worry. I like that. Maybe laugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, he does have but, some good um, lines, uh, yeah. Donald, for sure. Yeah. So next one then, archetypal Scottish moment. I'll get the whiskey and the Dundee cake. I had written down Dundee cake as well. I'd also written <laughs> beat in Norway. <laughs> it was pretty good to beat in Norway. Oh, that, that's a good one. Yeah. That is a good one. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Don't get too cocky. We're playing them again no, what, next month or the month after. Yeah, so I know, I know. Don't get too cocky. But yeah, that's a good one right now. Yeah, I like right, that. We only need two points out of three games. That's all we need. <laughs> Touch wood. Ach, I, would, we, would we even need that, I think, if, um, if Norway and Georgia draw yeah. like, on Wednesday? I, I think at this good, stage, that's all we need. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, pending results, and then the last one. I mean, we sort of touched on it a wee bit earlier on, but the uh, the Sean Connery Award. Who won the movie for you? Yeah, I did say this earlier that I was kind of tied between um, Gerard Butler and Peter Mullen, but I think I was I was probably swayed by the fact that it's just a really good Gerard Butler performance. Mm. I mean, Peter Mullen wins this film, yeah, without a doubt. Oh, and he's incredible. I mean, Peter Mullen wins. I think. In fact, I'm going to go back through the the archives and see if there's been a a film we've covered that Peter Mullen's been in that he hasn't won. Don't think so. Uh, well, yeah, there would have been actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, Train spotting. Oh Charlie, yeah, of course. For example, yeah, yeah. would have been. Yeah, yeah, but I, th- I think. Um, we, but I think one I of think, the leads. I don't think. Yeah, you know. I, yeah, the, the, there's nothing compares to Peter Mulland. His um, his facial expressions. I read an online review that basically said, you know, when he he scrunches his face and you see his wrinkles, it's just like a roadmap of his life. Yeah, and yeah, it's really good. You just feel every part of everybody's been, mm. and he can just give a look. And there's, there's a good few scenes that, you know, I think one you mentioned earlier, he just gives a look and you just evoke so much yeah. energy and passion and conveys so much, you know, exactly what he's thinking. And my God, yeah, there's, there's 
has there ever been anyone better, like Scottish actor Peter I mean, Mullen, without a doubt? He seems to. Um, he seems, you know, he seems particularly adept at playing characters that are in pain. You know what I mean? Like mm, Thomas is in pain. Mm-hmm. Joe, in my name is Joe, is in pain. Although he's doing everything he can to distract, to sort of distract himself from it. You're busy with the football, busy with this, busy with that. Um, but you know, you know, it's just he's great at it. But equally. When you see him being interviewed and he's just being Peter Mullen, he just seems like the fucking warmest, nicest guy. Oh, you know what I mean? But yeah, happiest, go lucky. Yeah, yeah. happy to chat to everyone, yeah. making jokes. You know, it's, it's, when we covered him on um, uh, Young Adam, you know, he's joking about I'm the only one that doesn't have to have sex. Next <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, just such a lovely yeah, guy, yeah, so yeah. warm-hearted. Just seems so chipper and so nice. And yeah, a guy I'd love to go to a pint with. Peter, if you ever listen to this, yeah. we'd love to go for a pint. We'd love with you. to. Yeah, honestly. I was just absolutely astonishing. Astonishing actor. So that is The Vanishing uh, wrapped up. Um, now, it occurred to me, <laughs> so my last three choices have all had a nautical theme. <laughs> but and it wasn't intentional. <laughs> right? But obviously The Vanishing, the set on a lighthouse. Before that, I chose Young Adam, uh, set on a barge on the on the Clyde Canal. Yeah. And before that, I chose For Those in Peril uh, with... Uh, which is also set in a seaside town and about a, a, a sinking ship. I'll, for the next time I pick, I'll try and move away from the sea. But it's your turn next time, Nikki. So what are we going to be watching for the next episode of The Swally? Well, Greg, you mentioned something earlier on the podcast today and your wish is my command. So we are going to go back to episode eight of The Culture Swally mm. and revisit something we've looked at before. We're going to go back to 1992 and we're going back to Mary Hill (laughs) and we're going to catch up with Detective Chief Inspector Jim Taggart as we look at the Series 7 investigation. Probably one of the most mentioned things on the Culture Spally. for sure. Nest of Vipers. (laughs) Brilliant. And it is available on STV Player and also UK Now TV if you want to watch it to do homework for that. So on the next episode of Swally, we're going to look at Taggart, Nest of Vipers. Brilliant. Cool. I look forward to that. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us on cultureswally at gmail.com. Get in touch with any news stories that you've seen or any thing you'd like us to cover on the podcast or just get in touch and say hello uh, you can follow us on insta at culture swally pod or you can follow us on x at swally pod and greg we have a wonderful new website as well uh, a wonderful not, not new we've had it for a year um but uh, def- not new you're right. a bit neglected website uh, you can i wish i need to do some work on i feel like i say that all the time but you can find us at cultureswally.com um you can find links to all the episodes and some articles and features about Scottish pop culture. And you can get in touch with us through the website as well. Of course. Right. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Much appreciated. Um, Are you off to go and, I don't know. Tie some nautical knots. (laughs) Yeah, you have to go and get your knot board sorted. (laughs) I'm off to, well, it's Sunday, um, so I'm off to cook uh, a lovely Sunday roast for my family. Not that they'll appreciate it because like two quarters are teenagers and the other one is my wife. Um, But I'm looking forward to it anyway. (laughs) Oh, very well. Okay, well, enjoy. And uh, yeah, until I'll see you next time. Until next time. A distance from your hand. <laughs> Go and get a fiddle, Thomas, eh? <laughs>
Let's have a song. Yeah. I'll get whiskey. <laughs> Don't be short with those measures. I'll be a judge of that. And the Dundee cake? Whoa! How did you know about my Dundee cake? <laughs>